Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Pattar. I lead the Jane's intelligence unit. I'm joined on this episode by Adam Hadley, the CEO of QuantSpark. Adam's also involved in a really interesting initiative that I wanted to talk to uh, talk to him about on this podcast, uh, the Tech Against Terrorism program, which Adam, I'll, I'll get you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background and how you got to this stage and what you're doing with open source intelligence. But then specifically, we'll, we can come on to talk about tech against terrorism, because I think it's really something that, you know, a lot of people probably aren't aware of who actually could get a lot of benefit from it. So, I mean, to start off with, how did you how did you sort of get to where you are now? And, and how do you how do your two roles kind of dovetail, I guess, you know, working at QuantSpark, but also working with tech against terrorism? Hi, Terry. Thanks very much for having me on the, the podcast today. Really delighted to to contribute. So I run a data science consultancy called QuantSpark that's focused on commercial problem solving using data and data science. But also I run a not-for-profit initiative called Tech Against Terrorism. You know, my interest is in applying data in practical ways and having impacts. And Tech Against Terrorism is a really good example of this. So Tech Against Terrorism came out in 2016, actually. The UN Counterterrorism Executive Directorate started a very small project looking at the terrorist use of the internet. And the UN wanted to focus on the opportunity to develop a public-private partnership. So Tech Against Terrorism is a public-private partnership. And what this means in practice is that we focus on working with uh, democratic governments, the tech sector and civil society, because we recognize that the terrorist use of the internet isn't just purely the responsibility of one type of organization. Uh, long gone are the days when it, the government alone can solve these challenges. And certainly the tech sector, whilst uh, the tech sector has lots of capability in, in many ways, um, certainly the tech sector alone can't tackle this either. So primarily our job at Tech Against Terrorism is to help bridge that divide and to focus on practical, uh, pragmatic approaches so that together we can disrupt, even eliminate the terrorist use of the internet. But of course, we've got to recognize that we're, we're only really focusing on the, the, the online element of this. And terrorist content is a function of terrorists in real life and violent extremists in real life who are producing this content. So we see ourselves as disrupting terrorist use of, of services, whether that be social media or messaging apps or or file sharing sites, whatever it might be. So we really roll up our sleeves and we pride ourselves on focusing on on disruption in a way that sometimes governments can't do and the tech sector doesn't know how to. Uh, And we support the tech sector, big and small companies alike, to figure out, well, how to go about this, because it's it's so complex, isn't it? The the definition of terrorism and terrorist content, it's a wicked problem. It's really hard to define what this problem is, and it's even harder then to come up with various solutions. And certainly we don't, we don't lay claim to, to knowing how to solve all of it. But what we want to focus on is a really small element, which is understanding how do terrorists and violent extremists use online services? What can we do to stop them or to make it more difficult for them to increase the friction? Because certainly what we don't want is terrorists thinking that they can get away with using the Internet in any which way they want. And, you know, that's a victory for them boasting about, you know, taking over a small platform or boasting about posting content on a, on a particular large social media platform. For them, it's a battle. It's a virtual battle. And, you know, and thank goodness no one, no one dies in this virtual battle, but it's certainly one that we've got to engage with. 
that description of it being a wicked problem you've really hit the nail on the head because i think that's really misunderstood you know whenever you see in the within news coverage and also members of parliament talking about this issue and this this problem it sounds very oversimplistic you know they seem to think that it's tech companies should be fully aware of everything that's going on on their platforms they should be able to get rid of it which is just not understanding the scale of the problem in my view and I, you know i think you know from the work you found i guess that that's also reflected in the, the interactions you've probably had with some of those tech companies that actually it's it's so hard and so challenging because all of those platforms are set up and designed for freedom of movement of information and sharing of information and they're not designed for getting rid of information necessarily so how do you sort of see that developing in terms of you know the, the understanding of, of those platforms in how to how to identify this content and get rid of it before it enables those groups to really celebrate the fact that they're sharing it online well, certainly there are two kind of extremes here, aren't there? There's one extreme, uh, oh, you know, it's too complex. There's nothing we can do. You know, this is impossible. And the other position uh, is, oh, well, you know, tech is amazing, can do everything. You know, AI that, AI this. Truth <laughs> is obviously in the middle, right? So yeah. it's about breaking the problem down. If we're thinking about the kind of this is a wicked problem, the only way we're really going to solve this is by breaking it down in small chunks. And crucially, then having a measurement and evaluation framework so that we can demonstrate success. And this is not to say that we only do things that we can measure, but it's really helpful. And I think it's important that all of us in the counterterrorist community ensure that we have very clear objectives and key results so that we can actually say, well, look, this is successful. This isn't working. Let's switch focus in this particular way. So really what we focus on at Tech Against Terrorism is I guess it's more methodological in the sense that we want to focus on really practical things that will make a difference. Because if we try and, you know, lean into the whole debate of, you know, how do we define hate speech? Now, there are some amazing minds who are working on this, but are we ever going to solve that? Probably not. I, I, I only saw this week a survey come out of members of the British public about, you know, what do people feel that the tech sector should do more of them? The resounding answer was the tech tech sector needs to do more about online abuse. The problem with this, of course, is everyone thinks that abuse is different things and probably thinks that everyone else is being abusive. So that there, there are some issues here. So instead of tackling that, which uh, you know, certainly beyond our brains, what we want to focus on is content and activity that's blindingly obviously affiliated and associated with terrorists and violent extremists. So the perfect is the enemy of the good in this case. And the policy community can sometimes uh, get really excited about the complex, academic, intellectual, ambiguous problems because, well, of course, it's interesting, right, to think about all of that complexity. But in, in practice, this is about focusing on things where we can make a difference. So, for example, we know terrorists use all forms of technology uh, for strategic communications, for operations, you know, for really tactical things as well. There's a variety of use cases of various technologies. So for us, what's key is trying to map that out and understand it and then establish where, where we and others can make a, a difference there. And as I said, you know, right at the beginning, for us, this is this is a battle, right? We, we, we see this as someone needing to take the fight to terrorists and so that they know that someone is on their case, that someone is monitoring what they're doing and crucially intervening and trying to stop that. Because, of course, there is some complexity here in terms of the ethics, right? Because Ozen typically doesn't uh, seek to influence the adversary. I mean, that's probably a, a key element of intelligence, right? Yeah, it's about <laughs> you, being observational and seeing what's out there without, yeah, without them, ideally, without them knowing that you're observing them. 
Sure, and that has that's so much value, of course. And and there are there are loads of you know examples where it's absolutely critical that OSINT and you know all source analysis and everything connected to that is is secret and confidential. However, it's also important that we do something about it. And striking that balance is really important because there is a sort of uh, intelligence um, dilemma conundrum here, isn't there? You know, the extent to which you want to collect information uh, versus then intervene. And, and when, when there are, you know, thousands of researchers from all manner of institutions with different agenda and priorities, it, it, it can become really confusing. Um, and, and we see a number of uh, kind of strange phenomena where, you know, academics might share, you know, enormously detailed uh, screenshots or documents about how terrorists are doing this, that, and other things, but uh, you know, and that has some merit in some cases. But but a lot of the time, terrorists then pick this up, and and will use that information. So the key thing I think that we we always try to focus on at Tech Against Terrorism is ensuring that um, everybody who participates in this understands that we're dealing with a really sophisticated adversary. Uh, you know, and I dare say uh, there could well be terrorists and violent extremists listening to this podcast. Hopefully, not many, but I mean, it's freely <laughs> yeah, available. It'll be out there, so yeah, potentially. So we've got to assume that the environment we're operating on is one that you know we have really sophisticated adversaries who will shift and change their approaches, and and we see this with uh, you know big tech uh, getting better, a lot better uh, at automated removal of uh, certain types of content. Certainly, there's you know there's always room for improvement, but there's a market shift um, that, that we've seen with the way you know big platforms are dealing with this. Certainly, from the initiation of Tech Against Terrorism five years ago, when there was really wo- woefully sort of inadequate measures in place for automating removals and also processing and uh, uh, you know referrals uh, for content removal requests, we, we're really in a different position now. But the, the you know as a result of that terrorists and violent extremists have, have shifted and you know hopefully that's something we can come on to in a few moments in terms of the fact that that actually it, it isn't um it isn't whack-a-mole as such but what we obviously see is adversarial shift because unless we're dealing with the root causes of terrorist use of the internet obviously that activity is going to move elsewhere to some extent yeah that was, that's really interesting and I, you know, I definitely want to come on to that but just before we do that i wanted to ask a little bit more about how does tech against terrorism do what it does so how do you how do you do that research you know and and who's involved you know i, I think it's, it's a large collective and you're getting a lot of collaboration between different organizations tech against terrorism pretty small team to be honest so at the moment we're six we're trying to scale to about 10 overall we've got three areas of focus the first is ozin so is uh, developing a forensic understanding of how terrorists are using various services in order generally to inform you know our understanding of this but then in, in specific detail to figure out which platforms are being targeted and how we can then con- get in contact with them and influence them and, and it kind of support them in dealing with this and that's that's the kind of the foundation of of what we do is that OSINT and also you know academic uh, literature reviews and so on because there's this is a really uh, intellectually challenging area that's changing all the time um, as you know as, as I'm sure uh, you, you know you, you've experienced as well Terry the, the, the other two things we focus on is is uh, best practice sort of knowledge sharing mainly with platforms because there's an assumption I think sometimes that tech platforms will will know the difference between this terrorist group and that terrorist group well you know why would they this is quite niche knowledge um, so that, so we, we we focus on that 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 uh, kind of knowledge sharing and and coaching and mentoring uh and thirdly 
we recognise that it, given that this is a sort of tech problem, if we're just considering terrorist use of the internet, actually the, the only way we're going to scale a response here is by building technology. So we have our own uh, dev team, our own team of developers and software engineers, and um, th they focus on building tools and building data sets and providing that kind of technical assistance. In terms of the open source intelligence we do, um, this certainly I'm sure it's, it's familiar to many of your uh, listeners. Uh, this is about trying to, first of all, understand the precise details of which platforms are being used and why, and recording this in various ways and ensuring that we're, we're on top of what's happening. So this is both the kind of structural monitoring, so looking at designated groups and generally how they're, they're using the internet, but also after various um, you know, offline attacks and events, we then have to have capacity to scale up, to do deep dives into particular things, because in many cases, there's significant threat to life. And we see it as our responsibility to, to report that to the authorities when we think there's threat to life. The point to stress here is that over the past few years, we've developed a tool called the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, the TCAP. The first phase is now live and working. And essentially, this tool helps our uh, OSIN analysts scale their work. So we will search out for activity relating to designated terrorist organizations on the internet. We'll assess the extent to which we believe that that group, that activity, that channel belongs to a designated organization. And then the TCAP, the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, will then scrape and crawl, pull that content in, and then alert the platform that's being used. And this is all automated. So if you like, it's a sort of hybrid system that combines the best of, of human open source intelligence analysis and assessment with a tool that then scales that. And as a result, we are alerting tens of thousands of pieces of content to platforms. And the vast majority of these then remove that content within a week or two of, of being informed of this. And it's that type of solution that we really want to advocate for, um, because it's certainly, you know, as I was saying before, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Let's just focus on really clear things that we can do, but cognizant, of course, of adversarial shift. And we're seeing a lot of this in terms of the use of various platforms. Uh, and therefore, it's important to stress that we've got to understand why this is happening in the first place, what the drivers of that activity are in order to anticipate what will happen next. So the terrorist use of the internet isn't just big platforms, which is, I think, a misconception sometimes. Certainly terrorist groups want to get their message out there. They, they of course, will always be drawn to the platforms that have a really broad um, audience reach, Facebook, Twitter, whatnot. And also, you know, when they get content on there, they're like, great, we've beaten Facebook, uh, you know, and they see that as a victory, <laughs> yeah. keeping content up there. Mm. But in reality, there's there are a number of layers beneath that and small platforms are, are a really important part of the ecosystem for terrorist actors, usually because they're so small, they're not aware of that activity or they don't have the capability or don't have capacity. And that's where we come in in terms of providing practical support. That's really interesting and uh, and actually leads us on to uh, what I wanted to ask about next, which was having read the recent report that Tech Against Terrorism put out, the Q1, Q2 report, and which are, you know, is one of your quarterly reports that come out regularly. And um, you talk in there about some of the highlights of the activity that you're seeing. And one thing that really struck me was this dynamic you've just mentioned, you just, you just touched upon there, which is the shift perhaps from a lot of activity being on bigger platforms to now using perhaps smaller platforms or even, you know, the distributed web, the D web, we've talked about that, you know, on this, on this podcast in the past, and that certainly seems to have grown. 
um, but also now you're uh, and, and it'd be great to get your thoughts on this and, and a bit more insight but you you seem to identify there's a lot more activity on individual websites that um, these groups are setting up and running for themselves um, and that really caught my eye because when when I first sort of joined Jane's in 2008 and started looking at online extremist activity we were just on the cusp of the social media platforms really taking off and so actually up to that point a lot of the activity was on individual websites and so we were going around and, and looking at all of these different websites that, that were out there and um, and blogs and discussion forums and that was where the activity was concentrated and of course in the last decade we've seen the you know huge rise of uh, social media platforms the ones you've mentioned um, the kind of content has grown on those as well but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're seeing currently. You know, what are the what are the shifts and the the different changes that that are happening now, and perhaps then what you see happening next. I think the key thing to stress here is that if we're going to do a good job of this, we've we've really got to be thoughtful about understanding the drivers of the use of the internet by terrorists in the first place. So you know, what what, what why do terrorists want to do this? You know, there are a number of use cases we put forward. Uh, one of my favourite books, actually, in counterterrorism, is uh, What Terrorists Want. I don't know if you've read that. It's, it's really good. And it, it kind of focuses on the rationale for terrorist activity in the offline world. But I think a lot yeah. of that applies online as well. So the first thing I would say is, you know, actually, what do terrorists hope to achieve by using the Internet? And, and there are a number of things, of course, there's strategic communications, as I said earlier, like operations and tactical stuff. And the choice of technology is driven by that objective. And I think it's, that's a really effective frame through which to to try and understand this in terms of what we're seeing re regarding shift from platform to platform in the early days like facebook and twitter it's really pretty easy to upload content and it stay there for a very long time and you know it's sort of no one would notice but of course over the years those big platforms have got much better at this although they you know that's partly about policy that's partly about enforcement and, you know, there are a number of kind of contentious areas here, of course, in terms of some platforms just deliberately not having policy in particular areas. You know, Twitter and the Taliban, for example, is a really good example. Now, mm, very enforcement, timely, yeah. yeah, I mean, enforcement is, is, is a separate issue to that. But but certainly the over time, we, we naturally have seen like it's rational for terrorists to try to move to smaller platforms and to share content in parallel over as many as possible. And what right. we see is that terrorists for a number of years now have essentially tried to share content over as many smaller platforms as possible simultaneously in order to evade content takedown. Essentially, if you think of this sort of network analysis, they, they don't want there to be too, too much kind of centrality, because if that's the case, then the, the chances are that this content will be nipped in the bud and won't be able to propagate across the Internet. So it's quite rational, therefore that terrorists and violent extremists, I'd say most, most of what I'm saying now applies to violent Islamist extremists, incidentally. The extreme far right have a very different approach and their TTPs are different in, in quite, you know, quite significantly. But, but certainly it, it's a rational response from a violent Islamist extremist to try to do parallel sharing. What we're seeing now, of course, is that you know, the TCAP essentially was designed to, to automate and accelerate the process of alerting smaller platforms to this content. And I'm sure there'll be adversarial responses to this um, in terms of having the content put out you know, more quickly over, uh, you know, a larger range of platforms. Um, but I think more worrying is that in some ways we're seeing terrorist use of the Internet going back to the late 90s. Right. So 
in terms of what what you know what we call terrorist operated websites we're aware of hundreds of these mm-hmm. literally hundreds so it kind of seems absurd for so much effort to be focused on removing a few pieces of content on smaller and larger platforms when terrorists of all persuasions find it so easy to 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 put up gigabytes of yeah. material on their own website i mean like isis.org i mean i'm joking i, I don't oh, think yeah. ISIS.org yeah. exists but you know what i mean there are loads yeah. of examples of these um and i and kind of loathe to reference them right because actually course, there's yeah. not a lot to be done about <laughs> you don't necessarily want people to go and look at them no definitely yeah. not you know definitely not and that that's that's one of the challenges in communicating the, the you know and, and, and sort of going through explaining why we think this is a threat the terrorist operated websites are a real problem right now and very few people are talking about them certainly in the policy world the reason for this is because governments don't know how to deal with it because right. of the legal complexity and also the infrastructure there well understandable concerns about human rights and freedom of expression actually it's quite a severe thing to be taking an entire website off and it's right and proper that there are checks and balances in place Having said that, if a website is actually run by a designated terrorist organization and they've been paying to host it and paying for the domain name registration, then uh, there's all sorts of kind of legal liability for the platforms there. And there's no kind of international consensus on how to deal with this. And, And what's more, there doesn't seem to be much political will to find that consensus either. Does it also, though, make it harder for those in your position who are trying to track and understand this activity, given that dispersion across all these terrorist-owned websites, rather than that centrality around a few hand or you know a handful of large social media platforms, or even even a few a few more smaller ones? Well, it certainly does, and I, I guess there's a conflict of interest here, isn't there? Um, that we all want to learn as much as we can about how terrorists are using the internet. And therefore, there's a tendency to not want to have the content removed. And, you know, so yeah. that's an ethical challenge, isn't it? Because mm. we, we're all, uh, you know, I'm sure your teams as well kind of must mm. be exasperated if you've spent months trying to, you know, track down a particular group and, uh, you know, you've got loads of great insight into their thinking. And then all of a sudden, you know, the content disappears. And I, I'm not really yeah. sure what the right answer is there. It's a real dilemma. And I think the worry there is always where has it gone and where does it go next and, you know, trying to stay on top of it, because ultimately that content is designed often to influence people and to, you know, help them generate more publicity, et cetera. All those things you mentioned, strategic messaging, all those aims that you talked about, and they'll just keep on going. They'll keep on trying and trying and trying. And it seems like it's it's a lot easier. And I guess this goes for any field or any type of activity. It's a lot easier to set up a bunch of websites than it is to identify them and where they are hosting the kind of content you mentioned which is not near the line of debate around whether it's terrorist or not but is well across that line and actually is some stuff that should be taken out um in terms of not being online um actually doing all of that is a lot more laborious and time consuming than creating and standing up that content again somewhere else Mm, well uh, well exactly And, and so you know i'd say that the question shouldn't be can we eliminate terrorist use of the internet but to what extent do we want to do so? And what's the equilibrium that we want to find? And what's the threshold of, of concern? Because if we if we go too far, we could make the problem much worse. And so what, what is that stable equilibrium point? And there isn't a lot of discussion about this. Like actually, in terms of tackling the terrorist use of the internet, just how far do we want to go? Government policy makers will say, we, we don't want any of this. Mm. Well, actually, that you know that's not going to be possible because for all the reasons that we've gone into. So 
it's an interesting challenge. It's extremely difficult to figure out what to do for the best often. Um, but my recommendation always is to ensure that we're really thoughtful about the OSINT we're doing and you know when we should actually be reporting content, when we should be referring it to the police, for example. So I think there does need to be a conversation, I think, about what, what those protocols are. And also a lot of this is about collaboration. Also, the, the challenge with OSINT, in my view, is that it's not really clear who is responsible for, for acting on, on behalf of that. And we, essentially, we've got a really confusing mix of actors doing OSINT. We, you know, we have institutions like yours, we've got governments, we've got private companies, we've got NGOs. It's a real mess. And there's, there's obviously no coordination here. So in the absence of coordination, sometimes nothing happens. And then you, you just have a really big problem, you know, with ISIS taking over a small messaging app, um, which has happened. I won't name the app, sure. but you're probably familiar with the one I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and at one point we estimated that that app was, you, you know, almost two thirds of its user base was posting IS content. Yeah. And because it's hard to coordinate, no one knew, well, who's going to handle this? Who's going to deal with it? So often we try and try our best to to lend support uh, and, you know, to reach out to platforms and just kind of get stuff done. But it is it is tremendously difficult because there are so many different people focused on this. And like you said, with some of those smaller platforms, they may not have the resources either to really investigate and stay on top of all of this for themselves or even to respond. You know, if you're if they're being inundated with people telling them actually there's all this content on their platform because yeah, you, know, you don't, really you don't act on misinformation. Well, this is it. It's really laborious. So, so I think we, where we when, when when thinking about how can we support small platforms, this has to be about um, thinking through um the challenges that they have you know so you know they've got really limited time they're probably want to focus on developing new features they, they don't want some weirdo talking about <laughs> isis and they're you know they just don't want to hear it it's bad news yeah. and it's, yeah. it, it's disruptive um to to the growth of of of, of their technology it's, it's it's never a profit motive by the way that stops uh, or, or or hinders um you know tackling the terrorist uses of the internet it's usually um small platforms is you know they're, they're focused on developing the tool and and they're, they're, they're not necessarily thinking about various nefarious uh, uses of it having said that increasingly the extreme far right is building its own apps own websites and in particular where we, we're talking about video content uh youtube has been pretty strict in removing quite a quite a lot of you know offensive uh, potentially harmful content that um resonates with the extreme far-right community as a result quite a lot of this content has drifted to alt tech to you know newer video sharing platforms uh, i won't name them um right. but you, sure. you know we'll, we'll all know which ones I'm, I'm talking about and then what we see is that you know platform a then kicks off lots of neo-nazis and then they go to platform b and then a new platform pops up trying to monetize this so with the extreme far right, there, there is there's a very different dynamic. And in terms of engaging with smaller platforms, I think it's important to uh, to differentiate our, our approach. And in, in, in those cases, what we often do at Tech Against Terrorism is say, look, you know, we're not fighting a culture war here. We just want designated terrorists off your platform. Yeah. And we refer to the UN list and, you know, the US list and UK and EU to help us with that. So, again, this goes back to our guiding principle, which is the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I realize we're almost up against time, but I wanted to just sort of maybe ask you, how can people access the work you're doing at Tech Against Terrorism? And, you know, who is it for? Because obviously 
you don't necessarily want to become part of the problem and give access to it to everybody in terms of all the content you're aggregating and the information you're seeing. So um, how can the analysts who are maybe working in government agencies or in tech platforms, et cetera, who might want to get access to it, how can they get access to it and where, where should they go for that? Well, we have a uh, weekly newsletter that, that has quite a lot of information, typically trying to summarise the, the changes we're seeing in terms of regulation and the trends regarding terrorist use of the internet. So that should be uh, the first port of call. If listeners would like more information about the detailed work we do, I, I'd, I'd ask them to get in touch with us directly and email us, contact at techagainstterrorism.org or message us on Twitter, and we'd be very happy to, uh, to support you know, we have a, a, a kind of regular rhythm of pretty detailed reporting that, that we uh, we share with with tech companies and with democratic governments to, to inform the, the threat picture. We also do a number of specific uh, reports and, uh, and, and research, usually for larger tech platforms to help them understand the specific problem that they're facing. Uh, and, the, you know, our team um, you know, we can stand up actually quite quite a large team to focus on 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 those sorts of projects. So, if anyone would like more information about what we do, we, I mean, we don't broadcast this sort of stuff. We 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 get up to quite a lot, to be honest, and we we tend not to tell many people about it unless it's it's necessary. So, I'd say please do get in contact. We'd be really keen to to hear from you, and uh, you know, we're here to help. Um, we you know we see this as um, you know imperative that we were all trying to find the right balance between understanding the, the terrorist use of the internet and uh and and stopping it and you know this does this requires a lot of conversation and discussion and we also appreciate that many of these things are, are sort of secret and confidential and you, you, know, you, can't, you can't actually explain stuff because of obvious operational equities that might um, might exist but nevertheless we'd always encourage a degree of openness and it, it you know it might be sharing information about deconflicting because what we wouldn't want to be doing is having a, an entire site removed by speaking to the domain name registrar or the host or whatever it is, if actually that could have quite significant operational um, impact. Certainly, though, there's no mechanism at the moment to, to, to kind of share this information. And, and certainly, you know, even if there were, that would be fraught with ethical challenges. So I think this has to be about us trying to talk, talk to one another and connect. And we'd, we'd really yeah. love to hear from you. And we'd be very happy to share research analysis that, that we've been working on. That's superb. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I think that'll be really useful for a number of people in our audience. Thanks again for your time, Adam. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from Jane's, covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's Threat Intelligence Solutions. Find out more at janes.com slash threat.